0: All right. Amen. Good morning to you all. Thank you again, Susan. Really appreciate it. It's a blessing to be here today. Um, We've been going through different books of the Bible at the same time, and I want to have us look again at Acts chapter 6, or the book of Acts, and this time chapter 6. We've been looking at different books of the Bible because of all that's going on in our country and around the world in different ways, and Just the challenges um, that we face because of changes in our culture and those kinds of things. We're going through the book of Daniel because it emphasizes the sovereignty of God, and we really need to be reminded of the fact that God's in charge, whatever the changes might be taking place. We're looking at the book of 1 Corinthians because it deals with a lot of different, very practical issues, and a lot of those are reflected in our culture today, changes taking place, and we need to be reminded of God's word and God's truth and God's standards. We're going through the book of Revelation because um, we need to be reminded of the fact that we are moving toward the return of Christ. We don't know exactly when that's going to be, but all that's taking place is moving toward that time when Christ is going to come back. And depending on your eschatology, uh, many people believe that things will get worse as we get closer to the return of Christ. And then the book of Acts reminds us of the important role that we play, the church plays, and the mission that we have. Regardless of what's going on in the world, our mission doesn't change. And obviously what Susan and Mark are doing in Cambodia is an illustration of what God has called us all to do wherever we might be, which is to spread the good news of Christ and to love people. And in the context of loving people, share the truth. And so we want to look at Acts chapter 6 today and see how that is meant to encourage us. Um, We we remind ourselves here at Coast that um, in 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says that faith, hope, and love are what are important. And love is the most important thing. And one way to talk about faith is to think in terms of resting in Jesus in light of the fact that he has provided for us the pardon that we need from our sins and the perfection that we need. He's achieved the perfect obedience that none of us can. And so we rest in his forgiveness. We rest in his perfect righteousness. And no matter how much we fail, we can be at peace. We can have joy uh, even as we seek to grow in our Christian lives. And then hoping in God is very much about the fact that as Christians we're not to look to the world for the help we need and the hope that and excuse me the happiness that we long for no matter what is changing around us our hope is still the same our hopes in God for what we need the help we need the happiness we long for and so we can still have joy and peace even when the world is changing in so many different ways and we're called to pursue love We rest in Jesus and what he's done for us, so we're not trying to earn anything. We're looking to God for what we need and for the happiness we long for, and so we're not trying to achieve that through what we do, but we are called to be like Christ. We're called to love people. And Acts is a book that tells us what was happening in the early church and how that fleshed out for them, how they're resting in Jesus and how their hope in God uh, fleshed itself out in loving people, both in word and deed. And so we, we need to be reminded of these things, even if we've heard them over and over again. That's one reason why we celebrate things like Memorial Day, which we're celebrating this weekend. We're, we're being reminded of people who have laid down their life in wars uh, for the sake of us, for the sake of our country. They, they've died, and we're remembering those who have died uh, for us. And it's a reminder of the fact that, in some sense, as Christians, that's what the Christian life is all about. It's about laying down your life. It says in 1 John 3:16, 16, uh, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives for one another. And so um, the Lord's Supper, which we'll celebrate in a few minutes, is a memorial, It's a celebration. It's something that's meant to remind us of the death of Christ on our behalf. But at the same time, it is meant to inspire us to lay down our lives for each other. And so the Memorial Day that the world celebrates or that we celebrate in this country is meant to encourage us to remember those who've laid down their lives and to inspire us to do the same in some sense. We too need to be reminded of the importance of laying down our lives because love that's what love is. It's laying down my life for the glory of God and for the good of others. And so I say all that just to provide a little context for what we're going to read today in Acts chapter 6 and to just to help us uh, begin by asking the question, what in the world does this have to do with me? Uh, there are a lot of passages that just jump out at us and say, this is something I need to hear and something I need to apply. Then there are other passages we read and say, oh, well, that's interesting. And we just kind of move on and we don't really think about what is God saying to me personally in light of this passage? Because all scripture is profitable for us, the Bible says. So let's read together Acts chapter 6 and uh, see how we might find some encouragement for our own lives, uh, for our families, for our church, um, through what we find in this chapter. In verse 1 it says, Now at this time while the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews Against the native Hebrews, because their widows were being overlooked in the daily serving of food. So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Therefore, brethren, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we may put in charge of this task. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. The statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, um, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. And these they brought before the apostles, and after praying, they laid their hands on them. The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was performing great wonders and signs among the people. But some men from what was called the synagogue of the freedmen, including both Cyrenians and Alexandrians, and some from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly induced men to say, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people, the elders and the scribes, and they came up to him and dragged him away and brought him before the council. They put forward false witnesses who said, This man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Nazarene, Jesus, will destroy this place and alter the customs which Moses handed down to us. And fixing their gaze on him, all who were sitting in the council saw his face like the face of an angel. One of the things that I want us to think about as we just um, begin thinking about this passage is just the whole issue of perception. Um, Some people will say perception is reality. Uh, That's not really true. Truth is uh, reality. Uh, But perception is what we think the truth is and therefore how we look at things makes a difference in how we respond and what we do and so what i want us to think about is the reality that how we look at the church how we look at our local expression of the church how we look at christianity in general and how we understand it is very important in terms of how we're going to respond to what's going on in in our own individual lives and in the world around us. Um, For instance, you know, I've used this illustration before. If a man walks up to you with a knife, what are you going to do? Well, it kind of depends on how you look at that man, right? If he's your surgeon, then you're going to say, well, that's a good thing. Now, if you're on the street and he's a mugger, then you're going to respond differently. So it all depends on, How you perceive that person. If you're in the park and a little child walks up to you and asks for money, what are you going to do? That depends on how you perceive that child. Is that child seen as a member of your family or a stranger? See, it all depends on how you view things. And our, our participation in the body of Christ is very much about how we view the body of Christ because it will impact what we do or what we don't do and how we think about what's taking place in this world. And as I thought about this passage, it's um, right in between two passages on uh, the suffering church. Earlier in chapter 5, the apostles are flogged for their testimony to Christ. And they go away praising God that they were... um, able to suffer for the name of Christ. And so persecution is ramping up. And what's going to happen after chapter 6 is Stephen, and we notice at the end of chapter 6, Stephen is being confronted, he's being opposed, and they're bringing him before the council, the Sanhedrin. And in chapter 7, he's going to challenge them with the truth, and he's going to end up being the first Christian martyr. And right after that is when a wider, uh, more intense persecution of the church happens. And so the picture that came to mind as I thought about um, this passage is the picture of the church being the outpost of the kingdom of heaven. And there are different people that have talked that way that used the picture of the church as an outpost. Now, an outpost is like a fort in foreign territory uh, usually in hostile territory, um, it in the Old West, the outpost or the fort uh, was either a center of community where trading took place, or it was a center of uh, military operations where soldiers were. And um, when I was growing up, there was a, a very famous outpost or fort called F Troop. Some of you <laughs> might remember. F Troop is one of those TV shows that I watched when I was growing up. And F Troop was an outpost, uh, a fort out in the middle of nowhere. And the idea was that they sent all the uh, outcasts and the misfits in the army to F Troop, hoping that they would desert. So that was the whole point of the story. And sometimes you, you, if you think about the church as being an outpost, uh, sometimes we think about it in terms of, well, it's, it's like F Troop. There's a lot of uh, um, misfits in, among us. Uh, we just don't realize that we're part of that group, you know. Uh, we just think about all the other mis- misfits. But the reality is, as sinners, we're all uh, much less than we ought to be, and we're all somebody's problem. You know, that's just the way it is as sinners. We're we're not everything we should be. And yet, if that's all we saw, if that's all we saw was the way we fail to be everything we ought to be, we don't see the church as we ought to see it. We ought to see the church like an outpost in terms of a community in which life happens and a community in which mission takes place. Even if We're not everything we should be. We're still uh, a community um, of people with the Holy Spirit, as it's reflected in this passage. The Holy Spirit is mentioned several times, and the Holy Spirit is at work to enable us to fulfill the mission that we've been called to fulfill. And there's more divine support than we realize. Uh, One of the most encouraging stories to me is in the Old Testament, in 2 Kings 6, when There's this king, King Aram, who doesn't like the fact that Elisha is telling the king of Israel uh, where his troops are going so that uh, the king of Israel can escape from the king of Aram. So the king of Aram sends a big army to arrest, um, capture Elisha, and they're circling the city and, and the servant of Elisha says, basically, boss, we're in big trouble. Look at all the people around our city. And what he says is, uh, Lord, open his eyes. And he opens his eyes, and the, the man sees chariots of fire all around him. And Elisha says, there are more people with us than with them. So what does that mean? We may feel like we're like an outpost all alone in a foreign area, in a hostile area, and we're outnumbered. But God says, no, you're not, uh, because the host of heaven is all around you. And I am in you to enable you to fulfill what I've called you to do. So um, I think it's helpful to think about this, because the context of this chapter is in the midst of the church uh, experiencing the hostility of the world. And experiencing the reality that we are strangers and aliens in a foreign land. They're beginning to see that, experience that more and more. And I think in our own country, we're beginning to feel that way. Whereas 50 years ago, um, it was almost politically advantageous to be a Christian. Uh, It's not that way anymore. Things have changed. And we're more and more in a a culture, a country where it's... um, It's not a positive thing. There's more hostility toward uh, Christ and Christian things. So let's think just briefly about some of the things that this uh, passage illustrates for us and encourages us to think about. And the first thing is in light of what it says in verse 1, the widow's complaint. It says in verse 1 that during this time when there's some persecution going on, but the church is really growing, and yet there is some grumbling taking place in the church. And the grumbling arose because the Jews who spoke Greek, that's the Hellenistic Jews, were, their widows were not being taken care of appropriately. We don't know if it means they were just being ignored or um, if they you know, somehow you know, were not on the list of those that were supposed to be served or if they just weren't getting as much as the... Um, Hebrew widows were getting. We don't know exactly the details, but there was a complaint. Um, You ever had a complaint about the church and what it's doing or not doing? I think we all have. And so even when um, things are going great, and most people would say, I'd like to get back to the church in Acts, uh, the one where people are struck down and there's complaints going on, right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, that's the real reality. God was at work, and yet we just, we just read earlier in Acts about Ananias and Sapphira being struck down, and now we're reading about complaints where, well, it isn't as perfect as I thought it was. You know, I thought everybody was happy, and it was just great. Well, there were a lot of great things happening, but it wasn't perfect. And, and so there's this complaint going on, and um, Matthew Henry has said, in the best-ordered church in the world... There will be something amiss, some grievances, or at least some complaints. Those are the best that have the least and fewest. And so he says, even in the best of churches, there are going to be some complaints about what is happening or what isn't happening. And so we just need to understand that. We need to realize that um, there's no perfect um, church, there's no perfect world, And yet that doesn't mean that God isn't up to wonderful things in that church or in his body. And so one of the things that uh, this story is encouraging us to remember is that we are called to care for our own. There are other passages in the Bible that talk about the fact that the early church actually um, had a list of widows. And, and yet Paul says in 1 Timothy 5, don't put every widow on the list. He says only put widows that are 60 and older and make sure they have a, a good reputation of godliness and make sure they don't have a family that can take care of them. And so it wasn't every possible uh, widow or whatever, but, but it was a statement to the fact that If there is a believer among us that just has no other resources, there's no family. And widows were, were, along with orphans, were some of the most vulnerable people in that day and time. And they typically did not have the resources to take care of themselves. And so we see here in this chapter and and further on in the New Testament that the church um, made sure or was called to make sure that those... Those poor people in that situation uh, were taken care of. And it just encourages us all to realize that there's a sense in which we as a family of believers are to be concerned about the practical needs of each other. Now, we may need to pray about how to help, how to assist. I mean, in 2 Thessalonians, there were some people in need, but they were in need because they weren't working. And Paul doesn't say feed them. He says go to work um, because you're, you're, you're not doing what you should do to provide for yourself. And so there's, there's, there's a lot that the Bible says about how we can love people. And it depends on their circumstances. Some people who are in need need to be encouraged to do the kinds of things that they need to do. Other people don't have any resources and they're just in need and they need to be provided for. And so... Uh, God calls us to care for one another and to love each other in light of that. Um, And to see the opportunities that we have to do that as just that, opportunities. I mean, the people coming to the apostles um, with this complaint, or if they just heard about it, you know, uh, one way or the other, the apostles could have responded by saying, oh, no, another, another complaint. They would have seen it as opposition, could have seen it as opposition to their goals and and their uh, happiness and that sort of thing. Or they could have seen it as an opportunity. And I think that's what they did see it as, as an opportunity. It's like the story I've told about the old man who goes to live with his son and uh, daughter-in-law and and their four-year-old. And he is losing control of his his ability to care for himself. And so every time they eat at the table, he spills something, and he gets food everywhere, and he smacks his food, and it's very uncomfortable. And so they end up putting him in a corner off by himself with a wooden bowl so that he won't break the dishes. And as the story goes, one day the four-year-old is playing on the ground with some wood, and the dad says, hey, son, what are you doing? He says, oh, I'm, I'm building... Uh, some things for you and mom. He says, what are you building? I'm building a bowl so that that when you get older, I can feed you just like you feed grandpa over in the corner. And all of a sudden, they move him back to the table and and they start loving him more appropriately because they realize they're setting a very poor example uh, for their son. And they realize they're not loving him as they would want to be loved. And so... It helps to fight the tendency to forget that that I need to love people like I want to be loved and as God calls me to love them if I can keep in mind that problems are not just the opposition to my happiness and the opposition to my goals, but they are opportunities for me to love as Christ calls me to love. And so we have to fight the temptation to see it as opposition, as making my life worse and complicating things, and praying that God would help us to see it as an opportunity to be creative, uh, maybe to do some things differently, because that's what happened in Acts chapter 6. They had to get creative, they had to do something different in order to meet the need. And so that's what we see taking place in this. Uh, Chapter And so in verses 2 through 4, we see the solution that the 12 apostles came up with. And they uh, said that the solution uh, should not involve them other than them suggesting and giving them a vision for what to do. Because they said, you know, there's some things that we really need to make sure that we don't lose sight of. There are some priorities that God has given us. uh, Prayer and proclaiming the word of God and if we were to take on this task of making sure that all the the Greek widows are fed on a daily basis then it would pull us away from what God calls us to do so we have to maintain some priorities and therefore it's an opportunity for someone else to step up and do something And that's exactly what they suggest, is that they call the congregation to select from among them seven men of good reputation, uh, full of the spirit and of wisdom, that that we may put them in charge of this task. Now, I I don't think... I mean, at this time, some estimate that there might have been 20,000 people in the church at that time. Now, how many of those were widows that they needed to feed? We don't know. But I imagine if it was a daily serving... It would have been something that more than seven people probably could do every day. And so I think they were put in charge of organizing a team so that they were leading whatever size team they needed to have in order to make sure this need was met. And so the second point that I want to make practically is we're not meant to do everything in the church. The, the apostles... Um, Recognize that they were called to do some things, but they were not called to do everything uh, in the body. And Acts chapter 6 kind of lays the foundation for what develops later on in the church. The apostles at this point are functioning like elders because the role of elders in the church is prayer and the ministry of the word. That's the primary function of elders. And they're functioning that way, and eventually the church is going to be uh, led by elders and not by the apostles who are going to spread out in various places. Here in this uh, passage, many people see the uh, precursors to deacons. Not that these were necessarily the first deacons, although some will talk about them as being the first deacons, but they, whether you call them the first deacons or just call them the precursors to deacons, they were given the responsibility of being in charge of the practical matters in the body of Christ and to lead, not to do everything, but to lead in seeing that the practical issues were addressed so that the elders could give themselves to uh, prayer and the ministry of the word. And I emphasize the fact that they weren't supposed to do everything because that would imply that the apostles plus these seven men were to do everything that needed to be done. And I don't think that's true. I think Ultimately, as Paul says later on, every believer in the body has a role to play. But every believer, and no no believer in particular, is supposed to do it all. In 1 Corinthians, Paul could say, uh, All are not apostles, are they? All are not prophets, are they? All are not teachers, are they? All are not workers of miracles, are they? All do not have gifts of healing, do they? Etc." And so he basically is arguing in 1 Corinthians later on uh, in that book that everyone's been gifted, but not everyone's been gifted the same. And that means not everyone or anyone in particular is supposed to do it all. Um, some have talked about uh, Maslow's hammer, you know, the idea that if uh, all you have is a hammer, then everything looks like a nail. Uh, that can be kind of. Um, flipped around and thought about in terms of if you think you have to do everything but you're a hammer, some things you aren't going to do very well, right? Some things you will do well that need a hammer. But if there are things that don't really need a hammer but need another kind of tool, uh, then you may do more harm than good if you try to do what someone else was intended to do. And so design is very important. Design is very important in the world that God has made. It's very important in the church that God has brought together. And so he gives us all to do what he calls us to do, which means there are some things we're not going to do. But that brings us to the next point. Uh, in verses 5 and 6, it says what the uh, apostles suggested found approval or it pleased the whole congregation and they chose or they elected Stephen and these other six men and then praying they laid their hands on them. And so um, the whole church was involved in the decision making process uh, even though they were being led by the apostles and somehow they came to the conclusion that these seven men need to be in charge of this task. Now it doesn't say exactly how that happened. Evidently some kind of vote took place. Somehow they had a pool of qualified individuals, and out of that pool of qualified individuals, they elected uh, seven to perform this task. And so what I want to encourage us in light of that is, even though uh, we are not meant to do everything, we are meant to do something in the body of Christ, every single one of us. And that doesn't mean everyone has a very public role, but it means that everyone has a role. And that role might be um, more of a private kind of role, because Paul will talk about um, our weaker parts and how we, uh, we um, care for them in different ways and even uh, cloak them in different ways, as in terms of our body. We're, we're like a body. Every body uh, part has a function, it's meant to do something. And uh, Paul will emphasize the fact that we need to see ourselves as part of a body. Now, I might see myself as as a finger. And so there's a sense in which the Bible talks about um, God's love for us as individuals, as individual Christians. And that's very, very important. Paul will talk about um, the life that he lives. He lives in light of Jesus who... Uh, died for him, loved him and died for him. That's a very, very individual kind of perspective on his relationship. And so in a sense, you could say, yes, Jesus died for the finger. But when you think about yourself in terms of being a a body part, um, the meaning of that um, is lost if that part is severed from the body. It only has significance and meaning when it's attached to the body and it's functioning as it's supposed to. And that's why there are times when the Bible also not only talks about Jesus dying for us individually but it talks about Jesus laying down his life for the church in ephesians five which is the assembly, which means us as a congregation or us as a people of God, and so that there's a there's a very real sense in which yes, I should see myself as having individual an individual relationship with God through Christ, but I should also realize that I can't fully um, see and understand and recognize who I really am unless I see myself as attached to the body of Christ and functioning in the body of Christ. And, And so the encouragement for us is to remember things like what it says in Ephesians 4, where it says, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Interesting thing about that verse is, think about it in terms of what's happening in this chapter. Um, There are believers in this church that are complaining about something that's not happening. So what needs to happen? Well, some parts of the body need to start doing things that they were meant to do in order to address that need. Now, there are times when um, it's a new need and no one even knew that that was going to be part of their role. Sometimes those needs are there for years and people aren't necessarily stepping up to fulfill those roles. But it's important to realize that what Paul says in Ephesians 4 is that the body grows in love when each part works properly that means if i have a complaint about the church then i need to ask myself am i doing what i've been called to do to build up the body in love rather than simply saying why doesn't someone meet that need why aren't other people doing what they're supposed to do now i might be able to go before god and god might say yes you're doing what you should be doing in the body And there are plenty of people that are. But what do we do next? Then we pray for the body, that God would help others see what their role in the body is as well. Um, Because the reality is a lot of times people get satisfied with where the church is, but they never ask the question, am I doing my part to build up the body in love? And they're just simply looking at other people. And we can all do that so easily. And that's why we need to see ourselves as being part of a team and ask ourselves, uh, am I playing my role? Um, a lot of times people will talk about sports in such a way that they'll, they'll talk as if one person basically uh, makes um, a champion or a loser. They'll talk about Tom Brady in football as if, because he's the quarterback, of the team that he is the reason why they win championships. The reality is if he didn't have 10 other people in the field with him, he would never score one time. And so we we tend to forget that as, as um, great as some people might be on a team, it takes a team. And it's the same way in the body of Christ. It takes all the parts working together uh, to grow in love and to be all that god calls us to be and it's important too to realize that i believe the smallest role in the church what we might consider the smallest role in the church has greater significance in god's eyes than than we know Um, things like working in the nursery and serving children if you really read closely what the bible says about ministry to children uh, i have to believe that on judgment day uh, some of the greatest rewards will be to those who have loved children. I really believe that. If you read closely what the Bible says about ministry to children, because in the day and time in which the Bible was written, people didn't think much of children, just like they didn't think a whole lot of women during that day and time, or at least didn't think about them the way they should. And so it's very easy for us to carry on those wrong attitudes. Um, Some of you may have seen the movie The The Greatest Showman. There's a song in that movie. It's about P.T. Barnum and the circus and all the the unusual people that were a part of the circus. And and there's this bearded lady who sings a song that's a very famous song now called This Is Me. And it's a song about um, basically how she wants to no longer be held back by what people think about her and her differences and those kinds of things, but she wants to uh, live um, boldly and, and basically say, you know, you need to accept me as I am. Now, the reality is that song can be um, used for good things or bad things. So I think in our society, uh, some, some people are using that kind of thinking to justify all kinds of sin, Basically, um, this is what I want to be, this is what I want to do, and you need to accept me as I am because this is me. And we would say, it wouldn't be loving for me to affirm that, uh, any more than it would be loving for me to, to affirm a child that wants to play with a box of razor blades. But there is a part of that kind of thinking that has some truth to it, some important truth to it, and that is all of us are different. But all of us have a role to play. All of us have been gifted by God. That's what it says in First Peter, that every single believer has been gifted by God uh, for the good of the body. And therefore, um, our differences are important. P.T. Barnum supposedly said, uh, no one ever made a difference by being like everyone else. So that being different is actually part of making a difference and therefore there is an appropriate way to think about how god has designed us and to embrace that as christians so that we uh, aren't jealous of other people and what they're doing and how they're different but that we rejoice in the fact that god has made me this way and he's made me this way for a purpose and therefore how he's made me must be important to the body of christ i'm in and it's very important that we think about it that way. And um, so just moving right along here, um, we are to care for our own, but not simply our own. I, I mentioned, failed to mention the fact that we still care for people outside the, the church as well, but we're certainly to care for our own, just like we're to care for our own children, even though we might bless other children outside our family, but we're to be concerned about that. We aren't meant to do everything, which means... Um, Sometimes the godly thing is to say no, right? To maintain priorities. That's what the apostle said. No, we're not going to do this. But we think there are people in the body that need to do it. And so we're all meant to do something. And the question for all of us is, what is that something that I'm supposed to do uh, to build up the body in love and to glorify God? And then the next point is, we're to be faithful regardless of the fruit. In verses, verse 6, actually, it says, The word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. The tenor of the whole passage is we have to be careful of letting things um, get us off mission. And the mission of the church was to spread the good news of Jesus. And the apostles were very uh, concerned about not uh, getting off mission. And so the point of the story is that God led the congregation through the apostles to do what needed to do to meet the need in the body in such a way that the word of God continued to spread, that the mission continued to be pursued appropriately. But what I want to just highlight the fact is that um, what's happening in the book of Acts was a time of revival for sure, right? And there are times in history and in the lives of churches where it's not like that that there's not as much fruit being born there's not as many people being saved and so the real issue is am i going to be faithful in those times when i'm not seeing the fruit i want to see you know as a parent i'm not seeing the fruit i want to see in my kids so what do i do i keep being faithful uh, in the church I'm, not seeing a whole lot of fruit, so what do we do? We seek to keep being faithful. We might have to ask the question, am I being faithful? Are the things I'm not doing that I ought to be doing and those kinds of things? The issue is faithfulness. And I make this point that we need to be faithful regardless of how fruitful we are because it can be very discouraging, whether we're talking about on uh, a uh, individual level where we're just trying to um, make progress in our own career or on a family level where we're trying to work with our children or at a church level where we're trying to um, minister and grow in various ways. There's always that issue of what, what is going on. And in the Old Testament, both Ezekiel and Jeremiah were told, you preach my word, but I'm going to tell you they're not going to listen to you. What does that mean? I'm calling you to be faithful you're not going to be fruitful. or You're not going to be very fruitful. But I'm calling you to be faithful. And so there are times when sometimes we're being tested to our faithfulness in light of the lack of fruit, or at least the light of perceivable fruit. As we talked about last week, God might be doing a lot more than what we know, but we might not be seeing the fruit of it, and we need to continue to be faithful. Another movie that came to mind that you may have seen is Mr. Holland's Opus. Mr. Holland's Opus is about a band, a man who wants to be a composer, but he becomes a band teacher, and at the end of his career, he feels like he's a failure. He feels like he hasn't accomplished anything because he hasn't produced the the song that everybody is wowed by and he, he becomes rich and famous as a result of And yet at the end of the movie, uh, all these former students come together, and they celebrate the the difference that he made in their lives. And um, someone gets up and and says, Mr. Holland, uh, you may not have written that great uh, symphony that you always wanted to write, so you could be rich and famous, but we are your symphony. We are the fruit of your life that uh, you were meant to bear. And so that... It's a wonderful thing. It's a really great ending to the story. And Paul says something similar to 1 Corinthians 4 when he says, it's required of stewards that they be found trustworthy or that they're to be faithful. And he says, it's a very small thing that I may be examined by you. He says, even, in fact, I don't examine myself. And he goes on to say that no one knows the fruit of their life, their ministry, And their efforts were all bad fruit um, inspectors. We cannot see the fruit of our lives. We don't know the fruit that's going to be born in our children somewhere down the line. We don't know the fruit that's going to be born in a church because of what we're doing today. And certainly we don't know a lot of things that God is up to through our lives and our ministries and our efforts to glorify God and love people But on Judgment Day, God is going to make it very clear uh, what the fruit of those things are. And Paul says, let's wait until Judgment Day before we come to any final conclusions about how fruitful our lives and ministries have been. And so that's an encouragement to all of us because um, we may think we're not accomplishing much at all in our lives through our efforts, through our desire to love people and honor God. But we're terrible fruit inspectors, just like Mr. Holland. He thought he was a failure. And all those people came together to say, no, uh, you've been used in my life to do wonderful things. And uh, on that day, on that last day, God will show us uh, what the fruit of our lives have been. And it's meant to encourage us to be faithful and not to give up and not to think, that any single thing we do in the name of Christ is going to be overlooked. It says that if we give a cup of cold water to a child in the name of Jesus, we will receive a reward. Every little thing we do to glorify God and love people in the name of Christ is going to be recognized. And there's going to be fruit from it that we can't even fully imagine. Well, we'll talk more about this as we get into chapter 7. But the last part of the chapter is about Stephen and how he was opposed. Um, The reality is God calls us to live this way. He calls us to be uh, faithful to this community outpost. He calls us to be faithful to this um, military outpost called the church and to do it in hostile territory, to do it. Uh, when there 's going to be opposition, and Stephen, uh, as a, uh, one of the first deacons, so to speak, is um, powerfully empowered to preach the gospel, so it wasn 't that he wasn 't a godly person at all; he was a tremendously godly person that God used, and we 'll talk more about him. but the question is, why was he opposed it wasn 't because he was doing anything wrong it 's because he was doing something right. He was proclaiming the truth. And the Bible says um, that if we proclaim the truth, we will be hated for it. And that still surprises us, even though the Bible says don't be surprised by that. Uh, Jesus said, the world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify of it that its deeds are evil. Whenever we speak the truth in such a way that it exposes the evil of what people are doing, it will evoke evil. Opposition. It will evoke hatred. Jesus said, You will be hated by all because of my name. And in first John it says, Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. But even if we're hated, we're called to love our enemies. We're called to serve. We're called to proclaim the good news that they might be delivered. Obviously, all of us are thinking about what happened in Texas this week with the school shooting. And there are all kinds of things that people are talking about with regard to what we need to do to try to prevent something like that. By um, asking questions like Was there a lack of legislation? Was there a lack of gun control? Uh, was there failed security? Um, was this simply an issue of mental illness that wasn't properly dealt with and managed? Or was it the fruit of poor parenting? Um, was it the result of violent video games? Uh, Was it a cry for attention? Um, All these kinds of things are being brought up, and legitimately so. Those are good questions. We need to ask all those questions and ask if maybe they played some sort of role in this. But I I think biblically we have to ask a deeper question because all those are more surface issues. They're not really the fundamental issue. The Bible connects murder to hatred, um, there's a verse in 1 John which says, Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. So that committing murder is tied to anger and, and hatred. Well, I asked the question this week, so was he angry with those children? That I don't even know if he knew. I, I imagine he may not have known any of them. might have known some. It was a small town, it's possible. But I assume... I assume that it wasn't because he was angry at them personally. So what was the anger at? Or who was the anger at? The Bible says, ultimately, our anger and hatred naturally is toward God. And what are people? They are creatures made in the image of God. So sometimes people act that way because they're ultimately bitter and angry toward God. And they can't attack God, but they can attack those made in the image of God. And I think that happens a lot. And we see in the history of the world that they especially will attack those who are children of God. And that's why Jesus can say, don't be surprised that the world hates you that there is a fundamental hatred uh, toward God. But we're not to respond in hatred. We're to respond in love. We're to love even those who may oppose us, who feel threatened by us, who, who don't see us for what we are, and we're to seek to glorify God in that. Well, I just want to leave you with this question. The question is, what difference can you make That's the question I'd like you to just pray about this week. What difference can you make? What difference for good can you make? Not what difference for evil, but what difference for good can you make? And make in what? In the lives of others. What difference can you make for good in the life of your family? What difference for good can you make in in the world, in the community, in your workplace? What difference can you make for good in this church? What difference can you make? Because that question goes all the way back to 1 John 3, 16. Uh, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for others. How are, we to, how are we to lay down our lives? In light of what God's word says, by seeking to make a difference for good in the lives of others around us. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word and how it encourages us in various ways. We do pray, Father, that you would um, help us to see that you're wise and good and uh, so loving and how you have created everything and how you've also designed your church to work together as a team for your glory, for the good of the world around us for the good of our own souls. Uh, Father, sometimes it's very easy for us to see ourselves as Lone Ranger Christians, um, see ourselves simply in terms of our individual faith and not realize that we are part of a body and not see ourselves as being part of a team. And therefore, uh, we we may at times be very um, prone to complain about the church either the church in general or the church we're in, and not realize that uh, maybe uh, we're, we were meant to be part of the solution. Um, it appears that the seven men that were appointed in Acts chapter 6, Father, were actually Greek-speaking uh, people, part of the group that was actually having the complaint. And so, Father, sometimes the very things that we notice That are lacking, whether they're lacking in our own family or lacking in our workplace or or lacking in the church, may be the very thing that we're supposed to be part of the answer to, that you've given us gifts and abilities, you've given us opportunities, you've given us a heart to see something change. And so I pray that where that's true for us, that you would help us to be willing to lay down our lives, to to do something new, to do something different, that things might change be better, that, that in the church that we might grow in love, in uh, other areas where things might be better for those um, in that group, whether it's our family or our workplace or otherwise. I pray, Father, that we would just embrace what we're about to celebrate. We're about to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, we're about to be reminded of the death of Christ on our behalf. And I pray that we would be inspired not only to rest in what he's done for us, but to take up our cross and follow him in laying down our lives to make a difference in the lives of others. And so, Father, please just help us to think about this passage in light of our own personal um, life and our own church and our own lives. And I pray that you would help us to see what you would have us to do to be doers of your word and not hearers only. So please be with us now as we prepare to partake of the Lord's Supper. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.